Welcome everyone. Today we have a topic called About Profit Hacks with Herman Simon. Let me please introduce Herman real quick. Herman Simon is the founder and former CEO of Simon Kutcher and Partners, a management consultancy with now over 2,000 employees that stands like no others for pricing management. He's the only German in the Sinkers 50 Hall of Fame of the most important management sinkers in the world. Hermann started in 1979 as a marketing professor in Germany and later taught at Harvard, in SEAT, and MIT. Hermann has published over 40 books in 30 languages and is world famous for his worldwide bestsellers, Hidden Champions and Power Pricing. Welcome, Hermann. Hi, Frank. Good to see you again. So for the audience, Herman and I, we know each other since over 20 years because Herman was actually my first boss and I really enjoyed your leadership, uh, Herman, I can say that. And maybe a little anecdote at that time, Herman Simon Kutcher partner had 200 employees and you knew everyone with the first name and you step into the office and said, hey, Frank, I have a question. And that was a really good experience at that time. That was possible until uh, we had about 500. <laughs> uh, but after that, anyway, I retired after that uh, as CEO. So it was no longer that important or expected that I knew everybody. Today we have, as you said, over 2000. So we are a rather large company compared to the time you worked with us. So you really managed to remember four, 500 names? Yes, I'm not, I couldn't swear that I knew each of them, but uh, more or less. That's really great. Let's dive into the topic, right? Probably the most current topic concerning profit hacks is inflation. And now your most recent book, Beating Inflation, is exactly about this. So why does it need this book, Aaron? Isn't it clear what to do inflationary times? That's not that simple. Uh, just to explain what inflation is. When you ask people in the street, they say goods are becoming more expensive, prices are going up. But that is not the true core of inflation. The core of inflation is the devaluation of money. And you can explain that uh, intuitively if you replace our fiat money, the money generated from nothing, like uh, in the Creation Act, where God said, he spoke Latin, he said, fiat lux, be it light, fiat money. If you replace that by gold, for an ounce of gold, you could buy a custom-made tunica in Rome 2,000 years ago. And for an ounce of gold, you can buy a custom-made suit today. So the value of the product has not changed. What is changing is the money, the value of the fiat money. It's like perishable food. And the direct consequence from this is you have to get the money as quickly as possible and get rid of it as quickly as possible in the way you consume a fruit. And this is a very important to understand what inflation is. And the second insight I got from writing the book, Beating Inflation, is that all functions are affected. It's not just about price and passing on cost increases, purchasing, finance management, supply chain. Everybody is infected by inflation. And I will explain that in more detail in the next few minutes. 
So getting money early and spending it early, right? So what are uh, the key craftsmen things? Craftsmen are smart. Yeah. Uh, in, in, in Germany, we have a habit that people offer so conto 2% discount if you pay within seven days. Mm -hmm. And I haven't seen conto for years because at zero interest rates, that doesn't make sense. In the last two weeks, I got two invoices from craftsmen, electrician, another one, and they offered 2% if I pay within seven days. And I paid, of course, within seven days. So they have understood these small entrepreneurs that they have to collect the money early. And one of them told me, I don't keep the money, but I buy new machines because they retain the value, whereas the money is losing the value. So this guy has really understood one consequence of inflation. So would you advise to look for smaller entrepreneurs sometimes for wisdom instead of looking for the big companies? Yes, we will discuss about the hidden champions, I assume. And these are relatively small companies compared to giants. And they are in many ways role models for excellent management and leadership. This leads me to a question which I always had regarding Hidden Champion. It's your most successful book, I think. And it's already in a series of four books now, right? Yeah. Uh, so the, the newest one is this one, Hidden Champions in the Chinese Century, Very just good. appeared. Very good. In China, the book sold more than one million copies. Whew. So I understood always that in its essence, it's about the importance of focus as a Z profit hack. Is this fair to say or is this concept much more than that? Those aspects are true. Focus plays a central role, but it's much more. And before focus, there is the ambition to be the best, ideally the best in the world. And that can only be achieved through focus by concentrating your competencies on a specific product or customer group or market or technology. And reverse side of focus is that the market is small if you are focused. For instance, there's one company by the name of Flexi. They make retractable dock leashes, these flexible dock leashes. They have 70% of the global market. If they confined themselves to Germany, that would be a tiny market. So how do they make the market large? By globalizing. And as I said, they have 70% of the global market. So you could say the three pillars of the Hidden Champion strategy is ambition to be the best. That's the entrepreneurial energy. You achieve that only through focus. Only focus leads to world class, but makes the market small. How do you make it large? By globalizing. Ambition to be the best, focus, globalization. These are these three pillars of the hidden champion strategy. When I'm hearing about the examples you mentioned in the books, I only have in mind B2B companies like you mentioned right now. But is it true for B2C as well? The German hidden champions are mostly B2B, about 70%. 20% are B2C and uh, 11% are uh, service companies like Simon Kutcher. We are a service company. And it's also true for consumer markets because if you are a small or mid-sized company, you have to focus. You occupy a small niche to get into distribution channels outside your home country. You better focus, but are the leader and very strong in this niche. So are the hidden champions also most profitable or are they more successful in other terms? 
They are also very profitable if you compare them, the German hidden champions, which, which I have investigated most deeply, with the average German, their profit margin is about 2.5 to three times higher. The profit margins in Germany are generally low, about 3.5% over many years. That's true for both large and smaller companies. And the net profit margins of the hidden champions are typically between 8 and 9%. So you could say roughly almost three times higher than the average German company. Yeah. So let's talk about profit uh, a bit more. You published last year a book called True Profits, claiming it's the first book on this very subject, Profits. So it's not really obvious. Why did it need such a book, Herman? Yeah, that's a book, True Profit. And that's indeed amazing because everybody would say that profit is the most important indicator of business success. Nobody denies that. But you don't have books on profit. How can that be? And my explanation is that most business professors or, or writers are specialists. So you have thousands of books on marketing, on finance, on advertising, on all these specialties. But you don't have the, the general management book, which looks at the results, looks at the drivers of profit from all perspectives. So I analyzed profitability in different countries, in different markets. I look at the ethics of profit. I look at the profit killers, the profit drivers. Uh, also, definition of profit is very important because what you read in the press in 95% is not what I call true profit. True profit is what the company or the, the entrepreneur can keep after they have fulfilled all obligations towards employees, suppliers, banks, the states, everybody. So I talk of net profit. And when you read and even in annual reports, it's sometimes difficult. I tried it today for a presentation to find out what the true profit is. They call of EBTA, which includes interest, taxes, depreciation, amortization. Some even blow it up by adding customer acquisition costs, etc. So you have to be very cautious when you read about profit. What is operating profit? Operating profit is nothing. The only true profit is net profit after all costs and taxes and all obligations you have to pay. And a very interesting finding I also report in, in the book is what do people in the street think about this true profit margin? I personally did a survey, but there are many other surveys. And in Germany, the outcome was 22%. Of 100 euros they take in in revenue, people think that the company have a net profit of 22 euros. In the US, the number in several studies is even higher, 31%. In Italy, it's the record total with 38%. The true number for Germany is 3.4% over many years. In the US and Italy, it's a little higher, around 5%. But in all cases, people overestimate the profit margin by a factor of 6 to 7. I have no explanation for that. They really think that companies make there are companies who achieve these rates like apple and the tech companies but a normal company is only one seventh of what people in the street think for me it sounds like the green is always green on the other side right yeah so yeah if you yeah, don't have a company um, you think oh it's so nice to have yeah. some 
I don't have an explanation. It may be a mixture of, of one-sided reporting. We read all the time of these extremely huge profits of Apple and Facebook. Um, it may be part envy that people think, oh, these entrepreneurs, they make the big money. It's, it's simply a lack of information, of understanding of the value chain. It would be worse to look into the causes of this misperception, really to dig deeper for a sociologist or so. Why, mm -hmm. why is this perception so far off the reality? So I'm hearing also that profit has a bad reputation. Is this true for globally or is it a German phenomenon? It's true globally in some countries like in France, it's even worse than in Germany. In America, it's also, it's less, profit is more respected. But if you want to make yourself unpopular in any kind of group or society, then speak out for profit orientation and profit maximization. <laughs> it's a safe way. So that's why you, you start the book from all sides, from politicians, philosophers, and not only from left people, from teachers, from, from almost everybody. So that's why you start the book with the words, I like profits, something like that, right? Yeah. I mean, <laughs> I speak for profit orientation, even for profit maximization. Why? My definition of profit, intuitive definition is profit is the cost of survival. So the manager, the entrepreneur who wants that his or her company survives has to be profit-oriented. You have to consider it like a cost. And to relate it to inflation, I think that entrepreneurs should care for more transparency of their profits with their employees. Because if people think that the profit margin is 20%, they think this is a big buffer, the company is not in danger. If they know that it's only 3%, then they behave differently with yeah. regard to costs and uh, fighting against inflation. I agree. So in, in the book, you go also deeper into the three profit drivers. You call it price, volume, and costs. So to all listeners, what are the most overlooked profit hacks that you point out in the book? Yeah, if you look at these three profit drivers, it's very simple. Profit is equal to price times volume minus cost. And the question is, which is the most effective one? And to use one comparison, if you can improve each profit driver in isolation by 1%, how does that affect profit? If you can increase price by 1% without losing volume, which is possible, you simply have to reduce your discount by 1%, then profit for typical industrial or service company increases by 10%. So the profit multiplier of price is 10. In theory, you would call that the profit elasticity of price. For cost, the profit multiplier is six. If you can reduce your cost by 1%, profit typically increases by 6%. And for volume, the profit multiplier is only four. Why is it so low for volume? Because if you increase volume, your cost will increase. That's the definition of marginal cost. So the, the increase in revenue coming from the higher volume, sales volume, is to a large degree, typically to 60%, eaten up by the increase in marginal cost. So you can say price is the most effective profit driver with a multiplier of 10. For cost, the multiplier is 6. And for volume, it's 4. 
Right. And uh, let me add something again mm -hmm. on inflation because this is such a hot topic. When you look at the three profit drivers and how they are affected by inflation, cost and volume are negatively affected. Costs go up and when you increase prices, volume is likely to go down. And price is the only profit driver which can compensate for these two negatively influenced drivers. So price has a very critical role to cope with the inflation challenge. True. Also, as you explained, it became obvious that each of those drivers are interlinked, right? So price has the most lever if it doesn't change the volume and right? And yes, and of course. course. Yeah. So you're, uh, you're, you have in very rare cases, it even happens for luxury goods sometimes that if you increase the price, volume also increase, but that's atypical. Yeah. Interesting. Cool. Herman, I would be particularly intrigued into the topic of insights, your view on the importance of that. You know, when it comes to top line management in a company, there are different roles. There are brand managers, product managers, there are pricing managers and whatever. And also different departments and people concerning insights, say market research, data science and so forth. So what's the importance of insights to you and is it treated well today? Insights are, of course, everything because there is a precondition to get the right decision. Are insights respected? And I think you think more of intellectual, quantifiable, data-driven insights rather than of gut feeling. In reality, it's a mixture. I think you should strive to find a balance with insights derived from solid information and also your gut emotional feeling. The reality of markets, of competition, of politics today is very complex. And so it's difficult to reduce this complexity to a manageable decision solely from data. So I think you have to combine intellectual insights and gut feeling experience-based insights to arrive at a, a reasonable decision. Yeah, I agree. So, for instance, uh, when you are faced with a decision right now, do I invest in China? I am already in China. Do I increase my investment, my business there? This is very difficult to judge from data alone. Right. Depends yeah. on your expectations, on your feelings, on your impressions from your last trip to China. So combining both is a challenge for a manager but i mean you have extremists on both sides some people rely only on their gut feeling and are not uh, are difficult to influence by by insights and others may be too data driven yeah the balance as always in life is yeah. the, the best way the middle way you know the thought behind the question was also you know you have a good general judgment and gut feeling in the departments who handle the topic right and you have good data driven insights at the departments who are dealing with that typically an interdisciplinary approach where the person who knows the topic can understand data and insights uh, reveals the best outcomes so just wanted to hear 
you view and obviously you see this is the same thing that yeah, and as consultants be... we mm -hmm. are always in this situation i mean when we advise a company we don't know more about the industry sector the practices the people than the management but we have better methods to draw information from data to condense it to measure value to customer to quantify etc and there we also in this uh, difficult balance to convince the managers to do something we give recommendations but they must weigh in their subjective assessments how are the customers the retailers uh, the competition accepting that reacting to that uh, so i'm very well familiar think as consultants that's obvious you have to do something But the guy has reservations because he knows it may not be accepted by his sales force. Yeah. We have an incentive system. We suggest it. And he says, oh, I know my sales guys. I don't know whether they will buy into that or work against it. That is reality. Yeah. Yeah. And also as a decision maker, if you have skin in the game, you are probably much better in gut-based decisions because, yeah, you have skin in the game and then you sink deeper. Yeah, and it's uh, it's easy for the consultant who doesn't uh, have to face the resistance against something or the failure of something. Yeah. Herman, last question for today. You are known as the pricing man. What's the most important challenge in price management for the future? What do you think? There's a very clear answer, and that's value to customer. Understanding, creating, quantifying, retaining value to customer. Because we are often called pricing managers, and Simon Kutcher is actually, as you know, the, the leading company worldwide in this field. But in truth, we are value consultants. Because if you ask me what is the most important aspect of pricing, I say always value. And that's also a story from the old Rome, because in the Latin language, the word for value and price is the same, namely pretium, like in precious. And this is getting more difficult because products are getting more complex, offer more intangible services. What is the value of a camera in an iPhone, which has uh, 10 million pixels uh, per photo compared to 3 million pixels? Technically, that's clear. It's three times better. But what is the value in the subjective perception of the mm. customer? And that's decisive, the perceived value. Mm. The customer may say, or many customers say, uh, 3 million pixels is 3 MB is by far enough for me. A more professionally, more demanding customer may say, oh, that's wonderful. I'm willing to pay $100 more for such higher precision. So we have many of these go to autonomous driving to almost new technology. There it's very, very complex and challenging to understand, to define, to communicate the value to customer. This is the challenge of pricing for the future. Wonderful last word, Herman. Thank you so much for enlightening us today. It was a pleasure and enjoy your day. See you Welcome, Frank. Soon. My pleasure.